in the middle of all of this, two points of like validation. The first one was I was over at a friend's house who was also running a startup and we were having pizza and having like a beer and then she said, oh, do you mind if my neighbour joins us from up the hall? And I was like, of course. And so she came in and she said, oh, you're from Australia. And she basically sounded like Miley Cyrus. She had like a very Texan accent. <laughs> I was like, oh, she's cool. And so she asked me about Calabasaurus and we didn't really talk much more about it. I had no idea what she did for a living or anything like that. And then the next day, Walmart signed up to Calabasaurus. Welcome to Ladyland, a podcast by Lady Brains, where female founders step into our world. It's a world of changemakers and innovators. We're talking to women paving their own way and extracting the very best lessons. We're your hosts, Caitlin Judd and Anna McKenzie, co-founders of Lady Brains, a digital and IRL club for ambitious women who are building businesses of the future. So strap in, fellow Lady Brain, and ride with us to Ladyland. In this episode, we're talking strategic brand collaborations. We've all seen and heard the stories of retail giants such as Nike and its clever collaborations with big-name celebrities. Those campaigns have resulted in a new direction for the brand, from a traditional running shoe to a fashion must-have, and provides mutually beneficial outcomes. But what does a brand collaboration look like for a startup, a small or a medium-sized business? We're chatting with Jess Rufus from Collabosaurus to hear how we too might be able to capitalise on brand collabs and to dispel some of the most common myths and mistakes. We want to understand the value of what a really successful partnership looks like. Collabosaurus is an end-to-end brand matchmaker. They help brands to source, negotiate and track the performance of collaborations across events, social media campaigns and product sales. It's a company that she started back in 2015 at just 22. We kick off with Jess sharing how she recognised there are so many brands struggling to create successful partnerships. I was 22 when I had the idea. I was 23 by the time I launched the business. So I had the idea in sort of 2014. It was about 2am in the morning and I thought, oh my gosh, I am going to be the next Mark Zuckerberg. This is the best idea ever. <laughs> um, and I think it all just came from, you know, when I started my career, I started out in fashion publicity and showroom management and stuff like that. And part of that job was pulling together media launch events for fashion clients every single, you know, quarter. So there'd be catering partnerships and venue partnerships and goodie bag inclusions and, you know, trying to hustle partnerships with beauty brands to make the experience so much better um, for the journalists and the bloggers and everything who were there at the time. And that was just really frustrating. It was a scramble. I was new in the industry. I didn't have an existing network to lean on. So that was really frustrating. And I saw so many opportunities being missed, particularly by small businesses. You know, I was working for these big uh, fashion companies and publicists would typically just ask other publicists, you know, do you have any clients where we can have free stuff? And that whole idea of free stuff just didn't sit well with me. It was kind of like, why isn't this strategically leveraged? Like there's opportunity here for for this to be really powerful for both brands involved, but it just wasn't approached that way and it was very messy. And then from that job, I went into small business marketing education where we would take small businesses through like a 12-month course on how to DIY their own marketing. And as part of that course, partnerships was huge. You know, we would try and tell all these small businesses that they need to be exploring 
strategic partnerships and collaborations as part of their business growth. And so many of them weren't doing it because (laughs) they felt as though they'd been taken advantage of in the past. That was a really common problem or they didn't know where to start or they were sending out pitch emails that were terrible and not getting any responses back, unsurprisingly. So it was kind of a sort of snowball of all of those things. And I was sitting in the office. I really didn't like my job at the time. And the guy sitting next to me, Pat, he was on Tinder and Tinder was sort of becoming this big thing at the time. And I thought, wow, this is so cool. You can like swipe right, swipe left. The swipe right, swipe left thing just became part of, you know, pop culture vocab, basically. Mm. And I thought, this is really clever. And why doesn't this exist for something like brand partnerships where you could find opportunities to team up with other businesses? So yeah, that's where the idea came from. And um, we launched it about 10, 11 months later after the idea, I would say. So did you, once you had the idea, did you validate it with anyone? Um, did you, how did you test that there was, act, it was actually a viable business opportunity as opposed yeah. to something that you had just kind of um, seen yourself? I think at the time I was in this weird bubble where I thought that it was just genius. And um, I think in my head, I thought I'd sort of tested and validated, but I, looking back, I absolutely didn't. Um, I think... I was very secretive about the idea. I was like, this is so awesome and going to be the next big thing to the point where I don't want to tell anyone about it because they're just going to copy it. Like I was in that weird Mm. mindset. I remember talking to my dad about it and I talked to, a you know, one or two publicist friends who I used to work with about it. And, of course, they're friends and family. So they're going, yeah, that sounds great. (laughs) So, so, you know, when I started, I mean, I made a lot of mistakes at the beginning just in terms of target market and all of that kind of stuff. I started thinking that publicists are our main target market because that's where I'd come from. That's where I felt the problem myself. And, of course, for the first two years, zero publicists signed up to the platform. It was all startups and small businesses who were looking to give it a go. And so we had to shift our business model, our design, our copy, everything early on when I realized, wow, everyone I thought was going to be my target market isn't at the time. So, I mean, and now, you know, fast forward five years later, we do work with plenty of publicists and all of that kind of stuff. But there were problems around, you know, we needed to, I think publicists weren't giving us a try at the beginning because we weren't credible. We didn't have a whole lot of like big brand case studies from the value proposition to them. It was kind of like, well, I'll hop on when other publicists are hopping on, you know, they didn't want to be the first one. And so it was really all of our early adopters were startups and small businesses. Um, So we had to really adapt to that. So to answer your question, no, we didn't validate heaps at the beginning. I think I spent way too much uh, money at the start. I remember going all in pretty quickly on, oh, let's build it right the first time. And then, um, you know, they will come. And that was absolutely the wrong approach. (laughs) And, um, you know, all of that initial, like any money I had available to me was gone in that first few months of just on development build and initial marketing to then realize that we needed to seriously change. So from that point on, it was so much, you know, bootstrapping and hustling and all of the things to try and work out, you know, all of the lessons the hard way, I suppose. So what do you think you would have done differently looking back? Um, oh my gosh, there's a bunch of things I probably would have done differently, but to be honest, it's so hard to say because it's like, would things have worked out 
the same way, you know, if I hadn't learned those lessons early. So there's things like I got into a sort of a loan agreement with a family member that backfired massively and I ended up in a legal situation that cost me more money um, than it was worth. It was a nightmare. So things like trusting people too easily and not getting ironclad contracts in place is a huge lesson. Mm. I've had to learn more than once. Um, There's also things just like, you know, I didn't have confidence in myself that I could whip together an MVP or like a website. Whereas I could do that now in five minutes if I wanted to, you know, and there's so many tools out there now. There's ClickFunnels, there's Shopify, there's Squarespace. You can use all of these things to validate and test an idea. And you know what? They existed back then, but they weren't as well known, I think. So I think if I could go back, I would have tested a much, Mm -hmm. much leaner version of that site first to figure out those issues. But then at the same time, it's chicken and the egg because we weren't able to establish credibility unless we had, you know, great graphic design and we did invest in PR and stuff like that early on. So, I mean, I suppose if I could go back, get contracts in place, don't trust people so easily and do not rely on verbal contracts. (laughs) Um, And also just, you know, rustle up something on WordPress or Squarespace just to test out, even with like a beta group of 20, 30 people that you think might be ideal customers that aren't friends or family, (laughs) you know, that are completely Mm -hmm. outside, you know, your network who are going to give you honest feedback. I think you raise an interesting point because from what, from what I'm hearing, you invested a lot of money building a product mm-hmm. that you were proud to launch to market to a yeah. target customer that actually wasn't, didn't end up being your <laughs> first um, adopters of the platform. Yeah. And so I think there's a really interesting lesson there around instead of investing a lot of time and money to get a product that you're proud out to market, launch something leanly and test it to, um, before you kind of progress in the pro- mm-hmm. process, which is, um, I think, a really interesting lesson. Don't be afraid to be scrappy. You know, I think you have to be scrappy and I think people actually do appreciate that because if you're going to stand by that and go, you know what, I will bend over backwards to make this work for you or whatever it may be and, you know, you're offering so much value to the table, whether it's scrappy or not, I think people, you know, relationships are the the core of everything um, and scrappiness is okay at the beginning. I think it's just accepted. Yeah, absolutely. I'll never forget I had a client that created this most incredible online program and uh, she ended up launching to two people (laughs) and it was so disappointing but the lesson there was for her as well um, you know to obviously test the idea before you go and create an incredible you know back end for the program. Yeah absolutely and and, you know you could do that in a consulting capacity and just get two people on board take them through the rough structure of the program that you want to launch and then get all of their feedback, their testimonials, and then you can launch the course with a bunch of testimonials and referrals and feedback. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So I have a question. So you you launched the product and the early adopters were customers that you weren't expecting and you said yes. that you had to kind of pivot your entire business strategy when you realised mm-hmm. that publicists weren't coming onto the platform. What did you actually do? Or how did you respond to the fact that those customers weren't the ones that you thought they were? Oh man, there were so many, you know, it wasn't even just the customers. It was that the tech wasn't where it needed to be either. We had issues around, um, you know, the first version of the website was that you would list your business. There was a little bit of matchmaking going into it, but it, you know, took into account like four data points. Whereas for context now it takes into account 167. So it was super simple. And also you could see the brand name. So you you immediately for free could list your brand, 
view your matches, let's say it was, um, you know, some other small businesses in your local area, um, but it would block you and say you would need to pay a paid subscription in order to connect with this person. And brands would just go, well, I know who they are. I'll just reach out on Instagram Mm. or I'll (laughs) reach out on email or LinkedIn or whatever (laughs) it may be. And they were short-circuiting the website. So there were so many issues working all together. Look, I think um, a few things that we did, like... To be honest, about a year into the business um, when all of this was happening and it was absolutely not what I expected uh, it to be and a relationship had broken down. I'd lost like the mortgage on a little apartment that I'd say worked so hard to get and it was just like, you know what, this isn't working. I'm sleeping on the floor of my sister's bedroom (laughs) and working other jobs to try and get this off the ground and it's been a year and if it's not going to work now, it's not going to work was the mentality And then Apple called me the next day. It was the most weird universe thing. And I was like, stop it. If Apple know what Collabosaurus is, I have to keep going, even if it's just for another couple of months. And it was was about speaking at at an event. It was nothing, you know, massive, but it was like, I've caught the attention of one of the largest brands in the world. Like that's saying something. So I suppose how we pivoted was really bit by bit and just tested a lot of little things and then iterated and then tested lots of little things and iterated. Um, and you know, oh my gosh, I'm trying to think some of the major, some of the major pivots we've made have been around the pitch portal feature being introduced, which was off the back of a US trip and lots of learnings around that, around that, which was in 2019. We also changed up our pricing pretty significantly in 2019. Um, what else did we do? Obviously, we stopped showing the brand names of your matches <laughs> so that people stopped <laughs> short-circuiting the website. And we just improved bit by bit and really listened to customers and kind of figured out what exactly what was it that they were expecting and looking for when they were coming to the site, how they found us, all of that kind of stuff, and just slowly making incremental improvements. But, yeah, the biggest ones have been pricing, text structure, um, and the pitch board, like the feature of the pitch portal. So we will dive into that in a sec, but I'm really curious to know, often it's the hardest part is just getting your your business off the ground and getting your first customers on board. How did you get the first businesses on onto the platform in the early days? Very good question, because I think what I expected to work didn't at all. And so, uh, <laughs> you know, going back to the me throwing all of the money I had available to me, which was not that much <laughs> at it, I... Um, sort of misspent in this way. So early on, I remember when we launched it, I had a pre-release, like pre-launch campaign going, where it's if you signed up to our email list to then go on to Collabosaurus, for example, you would get the first three months free use of the platform. And that was quite good. You know, we had a couple hundred brands sign up to that just off the back of organic hustling, a little bit of Facebook advertising. Um, but, you know, in saying that I spent a fortune with a PR agency to get a whole lot of PR exposure at the beginning, which we got, you know, we got in over 37 publications. It was amazing for sort of brand awareness and credibility. But in saying that, you know, that didn't result in immediate signups. Absolutely not. I had signups come off the back of that years later and Mm. people say, I read about you in wherever a few years ago, you know, it wasn't leading to that conversion. So 
really. And Facebook ads as well didn't perform very well for us in the first few months, which was surprising to me because that's all I was doing for clients when I was working in marketing and PR and that was working so well. And I was like, why isn't this working for me at all? You know, it's a B2B software product. It's a very different um, angle to like a fashion company, for example. So um, really all of our first customers came from hustling. I was doing things like our own partnerships with other small business B2B focused brands uh, like Startup Creative and the Owners Collective. Um, I would go along to a bunch of networking events and just meet people and hustle people and just build a bunch of relationships wherever I could. But one of the main strategies for me is back then Instagram wasn't being effectively used by B2B businesses at all. It was all very, you know, individual use and also, um, you know, product-based businesses were using Instagram very well, but B2B, absolutely not. And so what I would do is I'd pour about two hours a day into organic Instagram engagement, following people, commenting on things. And I actually, you know, at the time I couldn't afford to go to every business event. I remember, you know, like the collective hub were running some incredible events and, but it was, you know, $300 to go. And I was like, I can't afford to go. So what I would do is I would find the event hashtag for the day, (laughs) click on the hashtag and then comment on every single person who'd posted about the event and basically do a little bit of a sneaky and say, oh, it was so nice to meet you. (laughs) Oh, I love your business or whatever, but I do heaps (laughs) of research, you know, like I'd find this like coffee company that were at the event and I'd do research around the coffee company. And then it was like, you know, because I'm thinking these people have met so many people that day. And, you know, they might have forgotten that they've met me or whatever. And it's just that in, it's that little connection, which was like, it was totally so resourceful. Hilarious. But that's the scrappy part of like running a startup. And that for me, that built our Instagram presence off the back really organically. And it was very strong. It's it's still our strongest channel. 60% of all of our website traffic comes from Instagram at the moment. So, um, and I really attribute that to some of the early days where Mm. I put in, um, you know, which was massive really when you think about it, two hours a day. Yeah, it's it's a huge investment. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So talk us through the educational side of things. Did you have to educate businesses? I mean, you said that that they already knew that strategic partnerships were a worthwhile pursuit, but they didn't know how to um, go about collaborating. Talk us through the educational side of things. Did you have to educate these businesses and brands on how to create a good collaboration? Yes. And I completely underestimated that because I came from marketing and completely understood the concept and how it would work. Um, I just assumed that business owners would as well. <laughs> <laughs> not the case Never at assume. all. <laughs> Never assume. And you know what? Like, I think I, we still have to do such an education piece around brand collaborations. It's still up and coming. So many brands still don't understand the benefits, how to go ar- about it, how it would work for them, what kinds of brands they should partner with and, you know, like how to even reach out or find the right contact or get a contract in place. So we've always had to do massive educational pieces around that for sure. I mean, you know, we did a big research study with Chimera Media and worked out that as a strategy, collaboration marketing is 25 times cheaper than digital advertising. Like that is insane. And so many businesses aren't treating it as 
a sort of regular part of their marketing strategy. So many businesses see collaboration still as like a fluffy thing that you do. It's like, oh, you just team up and, you know, you run a social media giveaway Mm. or whatever it may be. But collaborations can be so much more integrated and powerful than that. You know, if you've seen Spotify and Shani Nicholas teaming up for their Cosmic Playlists, that's such a fantastic example of the ripple effects of a campaign that was done in partnership that you immediately double your reach, halve your production costs um, and really engage customers in, in a creative way. So basically what they did was an astrologer and Spotify teamed up and they release uh playlists based on your star sign every Ooh, single one. I like that. that. It's so, so clever. And it's just like, you know, that's a collaboration done so well. Mm. So they can be super, super powerful. And I've forgotten the question, but hopefully that that's okay. <laughs> but okay. So for all of the founders and business owners that are listening to this, what are some of the key things that they need to know when structuring or going after a collab? What are like the fundamental things that we need to know? Yeah. So the first one is treat it as a marketing strategy. So you have to have a marketing goal in place before you start doing collaboration. So you need to know, you know, what you're going to be tracking against. So if you want to grow your email list, fabulous, do a collaboration around growing your email list. Or if you want to, you know, grow your presence on Instagram, you can do a collaboration around that. Or if you want to add a revenue stream by releasing a new limited edition product. That's a marketing goal that can go behind a collaboration. That would be number one. The second one is to make sure that a few things line up. So you want to make sure that your target markets are really similar. So finding the right partner, it's not just about going, oh, I'll collaborate with a big brand because you need to know the reasons behind that. Why is it that you want to collaborate with a big brand? Is it because your audiences are really similar in terms of demographic and then any cross-promotion you do is super valuable? Like that's something that you really need to look at. Um, Also things just like brand alignment, brand values, also just um, aesthetic as well. I mean, I've made mistakes in the past. I remember really early on, I agreed to do a collaboration with a not-for-profit that clearly didn't have a graphic design department. (laughs) And they whacked like a pixelated Collabosaurus logo that had a white background on top of this image. It was so awful. And they were putting that out there. And I was like, this is embarrassing for my brand. And this like, this doesn't work from an aesthetics point of view. So of course, no two brands are the same. But if you look at your target market and what your target market consume, you want to make sure that whatever you co-brand together is going to make sense. Um, So marketing goal behind it, target market. And then I think it's just making sure that it's a win-win value exchange. That would be number three. Collaborations are only successful if it's win-win for both people. So understanding what you have to bring to the table from an assets perspective. So everything from web traffic to your skill set, to your products or services, to your venue space, to your social media channels, your email list, whatever it may be that you could bring to the table in a clever collaboration means that you can leverage something that's win-win. You can get something that you want that will always tie back to that marketing goal and reaching your target market, while you can also offer something of value um, that's, you know, equal or greater value to your collaborator. So you can build a fabulous relationship and campaign off the back of that. Some great advice. And so Jess, if I've got all those kind of pieces in place and then there's a brand that I desperately want to work with, what's the best way to reach out to them and pitch to them? 
uh, through Calabasaurus how do you structure your collaborations <laughs> so you can actually pitch directly to um, really cool brands through the platform without any experience and completely for free so you don't need to craft the perfect email or find the perfect contact you can just fill in a few sort of Q&A's and that gets submitted directly to the brand and we've got businesses like ASOS and Sofitel and Olay and stuff like that that you can pitch to which is really fantastic but if you were going to be not using Collabasaurus and you just have someone very specific in mind that you want to be collaborating with the first thing I would um, really get around is do your research absolutely I receive so many pitches myself even just you know for people wanting to be on my podcast for example when they clearly haven't listened to an episode because I don't do interviews just do your research have a little look at their social media and what they're kind of working on from a messaging standpoint at the moment just so that you can really personalize a reach out the second one would be like identify the right person, the decision maker. Mm. And LinkedIn is great for that. And then, you know, I would follow that up with finding that person on Instagram. I don't know if you can tell, but I'm a huge stalker of people. That's how I feel. <laughs> so many amazing relationships. Proud stalker. Proud stalker. <laughs> it's just, it's such a, like social media gives us this incredible channel to facilitate so many relationships beyond what we ever would have been able to achieve years ago. So, you know, take advantage of that. Use LinkedIn, use Instagram, use Facebook even. Even Slack channels I'm seeing, you know, um, that's how that's we how met I, Anna. That's how I can you know, do with you yeah. on Slack. <laughs> like there's so many incredible opportunities to meet people. So, but yeah. I would find the right person and then build a relationship. Think relationship first. Don't go in with a hard pitch. I use the dating analogy a lot where don't try and marry them on the first day. <laughs> Start slow, hold hands. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Get the first date. That's the objective of that pitch is to get the first date, not to marry them and go, yep, sign off on this and this is how our relationship's going to look and this is the idea and blah, blah, blah. Instead, reach out and entice, like, you know, um, oh, my gosh, I don't want this to be like some crazy dating analogy. I don't want to go too deep into that. Go there. We love it. (laughs) It's so relevant for us right now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know when um, you go on a first date and they, the person you're like with just talks about themselves the whole time? Oh, you know? Oh God. We talk about that all the time. Yeah. That's how dates go bad. So it's like, if you go into a pitch and talk about yourself the whole time, you are not going to get that first date. Mm. Absolutely not. So lead with the benefits to them, personalize it. So understanding your assets and what you bring to the table is really important before you reach out because then you can kind of be like, well, this is what I think might be valuable for you and congratulations on your latest podcast or whatever it may be and personalise it because you get so much more cut through that way. And you can discuss the specific idea or the specifics of a collaboration on the first or second or third date. Don't stress about having all of that together on that pitch email, I would say. So um, find the right person, know your value, do your research, reach out with the benefits to them would be my tips. Great. <laughs> I'm just, I was just applying it in my head to dating. Like, so the benefits to dating me would be. <laughs> <laughs> Great book. I'm a fabulous book, you know. These are all of my strengths and skill sets. Oh, bloody oh, hilarious. I love it. So let's talk. Cash money. Uh, yes. You've bootstrapped Calabasaurus. I have. How much? Not have, willingly. Not willingly. <laughs> oh, oh, do tell us. How much money did you put into it? You know what? Yeah. What was the process yeah. like? So to get it off the ground, I 
was doing a little bit of calculation around this because it feels just so long ago. I, you know, I think it was around eighty to $90,000 to get it started. And that was a mixture of a loan I took from a family member, which I mentioned totally backfired later, which is a whole other story. And then my own money, you, you know, I was working as a consultant, a waitress, um, a barista on the weekends and a high school English tutor after hours. Oh my gosh. <laughs> mm. So I was doing all of those things basically to afford my half of that mortgage of that one bedroom apartment and just to feed myself essentially. Um, and I could put maybe a, like a hundred dollars, $200 into the business each week beyond that. So, um, you know, it took about 80 to $90,000 I, I would say to get that first product built, but to be honest, if I could go back in time, it wouldn't have cost that. Now that I know what I know about building tech and all of that kind of stuff, it definitely wouldn't have cost that and I way overspend. Um, so yeah, it was about that to get started. And it, you know, it took probably about two, two and a half years before I took a salary at all. And, you know, even then I was taking $300 a week. It was nothing crazy, but it, it took about sort of two, two and a half years for me to fully wean off all of my other jobs and mm. pop into it and full time. And, you know, I always thought it's a tech business and all the tech business businesses around me are raising capital. So that's what I should be doing, um, which is just, you know, a whole other journey. And that went wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us about that. So in 2018, you started fundraising and yeah, in your I own words. say I probably started fundraising um, 2017, but I s- took it very seriously from 2018. I was like, this is the year I'm going to spend an entire year trying to raise capital. But, you know, in my head, I'm thinking it's only going to be three months. And it ended up being a year and no results. Oh. <laughs> so <laughs> why was it a full-blown nightmare? What Talk us through oh, what happened. Man. So many things. So first of all, I'm a solo female, non-technical founder <laughs> of a tech company. That in itself is a huge issue because, you know, even I, I was just mentioning, I was just listening to Kate Morris's interview. You know, she's got a co-founder. So when they went off and raised capital and it took her 14 months, um, you know, her business partner could work in the business while she did that. And, you know, that in itself only just kept Adore Beauty afloat for that, you know, 12, 14 months of nightmare of time sucking, raising capital. So I think it's really important to realise how much time it takes. It's a full-time job raising capital. It's a whole other kettle of fish. And it also, you know, when it comes to just Australian investment, there's very little seed capital around. So, For everyone sort of new to raising, there's kind of seed, series A, series B, series C, whatever it may be. And depending on the stage of company you're at um, and how much money you're raising and who you're looking to raise from kind of determines the type of capital raise round you would do. So I was looking for a seed round, which basically meant I've never raised capital before. I'm only looking for like under a million dollars. And that takes us to a series A round of funding where we could raise three to five million and really expand overseas. So in 2018, um, I started hustling basically every single introduction connection I could possibly get. And, you know, I tapped into my online stalking ability. <laughs> Love it. Reached out cold to pretty much everybody in Australia who was in angel investing, who were in micro VCs. I got plenty of meetings. I had meeting after meeting after meeting. And every single meeting 
ended with a continuance. It was never a no. It was never a yes. Mm. It was, here's some feedback. We'd love for you to get to X, Y, Z. And so I'd go away, I'd get to X, Y, Z, and I'd come back and say, I've achieved this milestone that you set for me. And they go, great. Well, now we'd really like to you, for you to achieve X, Y, Z. It's like another, like the goalpost continued to change. So in sort of mid-2018, I was accepted into the San Francisco Landing Pads program in, um, in the States. And I thought, you know what? There's so much money in the States. Startups at seed stage are funded more regularly because there's just more available funding. And I think the US market are just more used to taking risks in that way. So I went over to San Francisco again, all off my own money. Like this was just basically San Francisco bled me dry of any cash I had left. Um, and at the end of 2018, I was there for three months. Every single day I was, I was working ridiculous hours. I was still running the Australian business, trying to expand in the US and trying to raise capital and meet investors and found out very quickly that you know, in the US, you can't just reach out cold. It's very network driven. Um, my strategy of meeting with investors in Australia was not working in the States. I had to get a warm introduction and to get a warm introduction, I needed to build my network. And so mm. it was just a endless hustle of waking up at 5am and sleeping from 2am. Like it was ridiculous because of the time zone differences and everything that I needed to do. And it was rejection after rejection after rejection. At the end of 2018, I remember coming home so deflated because I was, you know, in the middle of self-doubt and just going, well, if no one believes in Calabasaurus and it's just me, then stuff this. Like, it's just, I can't keep going. And I've given this three years and you know, if it's not working now, it's not going to work and all of that. And I came home, no money left. We had a big tech issue while I was in the States that led to us losing a whole lot of customers at the same time. So, you know, our revenue wasn't coming in. Christmas was a bad time for us. And yeah, I was just, it was a few months of really it's depression, to be honest. And it was like hard to get out of bed and I didn't know what I wanted to do. And my ego was so bruised because it was like, you know, everything I thought that this would be, it's not. And I couldn't achieve what I wanted to achieve, you know, and I've always been able to work my way, like work hard enough and you can get what you want to get, you know, and like that's yeah. always been my mentality and it's always been true for me, except for that. And it was like a whole year wasted, all my money gone what a shame. And like this, this just hasn't worked out. And I remember, you know, looking back at the States, I had in the middle of all of this, two points of like validation. The first one was I was over at a friend's house who was also running a startup and we were having pizza and have, having like a beer. And then she said, oh, do you mind if my neighbor joins us from up the hall? And I was like, of course. And so um, she came in and she said, oh, you're from Australia. And she basically sounded like Miley Cyrus. She had like a very Texan accent. <laughs> and I was like, oh, she's cool. And so she asked me about Calabasaurus and we didn't really talk much more about it. I had no idea what she did for a living or anything like that. And then the next day, Walmart signed up to Calabasaurus. Walmart. Wow. Like oh, I hello. was just like, what? So she was head of product at wow. Walmart and thought this is a really great idea. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is like the validation I could never have even asked for. And it was just such a universe thing of what a random situation. You know, I'd been hustling my ass off. And then at the end of the day, one of the best connections I got was out of like someone's neighbour up the hall who joined us for a pizza, which is bizarre. Um, so that was the first one. And then the second one was I kind of hustled and lied myself 
my way into a networking event around Halloween and I was sat next to, you know how Americans get so into Halloween. Oh, oh no. She, she was dressed as Marie Antoinette and I can't even explain to you. She was Kirsten Dunst in that movie. Like she was just fully in a gown with the wig. It was amazing. We started chatting and um, she goes, oh, what do you do? And I talk, talked about Clevisaurus and she said, oh, I love, we love collaborations. I work for Gap. And I was like, oh my gosh, amazing Gap. Like what's your experience with collaborations? And she said, you know, we receive about 150 pitches every single month for collaborations. And it's basically one person's full-time job figuring out which ones we should partner with, who wants what exactly, going back and forth. And it's just, it's a bit of a time strain, to be honest. And I just lied through my teeth and said, oh, we can help with that. (laughs) Which at the time we were absolutely not set up for. And I think there was that realisation around the US target market, our US target market and our Australian target market are very different in terms of what their problems are. So for the Australian target market, it's always been access to opportunity they otherwise didn't even know existed through this matchmaking platform. Whereas in the US, there's endless streams of opportunity. It's about streamlining that opportunity so that it's more valuable and time-saving for them, to be honest. So I was like, oh, this gave me the idea for the pitch portal. And as I was talking to this awesome woman, I was basically just the idea came to me and I just said that that's something that we did and her eyes lit up and she was like, well, this is amazing. You know, we would definitely use something like this and blah, 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 blah. So when I came back from the States with no money and so, so low ego, so bruised, I had that spark of the idea for the pitch portal that I was like, I think this could be a game changing feature, but I have no money to fund the build (laughs) of it at all. And then, um, And like Walmart had signed up, but I was like, you know, I remember going back to all of these investors that I'd met with because they were like, oh, you know, you've come back from San Francisco. We'd love to meet up. And it was just very deflating conversations because I was like, I've done what you said you wanted me to do, which was onboard a big whale of a client. I've done that. And they were like, great, we'd want to see you keep Walmart now for six to 12 months. And I was like, you guys suck. Like, are you ever going to invest or is this just stringing me along forever? It's waiting you you on. Yeah. Yeah. So in the end, I was like, you know what? Stuff this. (laughs) And I'm like, you know, I need to take a break from raising capital and focus on building this, like clawing back this business that I'd almost lost complete faith in and lost so many customers from in this whole process because I wasn't focused on the business. And then 2019 ended up being one of the greatest years in business we have ever had. We changed our pricing model. We released the pitch portal. We secured a huge partnership deal with Microsoft. I got asked to speak at Vogue Codes. I won a B&T 30 Under 30 award, which just all of those little things together egged us on to keep going and stay motivated. And, oh, my gosh, I'm so glad I did. It's so funny. Caitlin's just sitting opposite me, like, going... (laughs) Focus. Focus. focus, narrow your focus. focus. But it's yeah. true. I mean, you kind of focus back on the business in a laser way and look at what what the result of that was. So there's a yeah. really incredible lesson in that. That's amazing. And I think it's I think it's just so easy to, as a tech business, to fall into that trap of, oh, you have to raise capital and that's the path you should go down. Mm, when yeah. absolutely that's, you know, just because everyone else is doing doesn't mean that that's the right path for you. I'm under no illusions that, you know, we won't need to raise capital ever. I think that we will need to raise capital at some point for Collabosaurus, but I think it's just we're in such a unique, fantastic position right now where we've learned 
all of the hard learnings and Mm. made all of the mistakes on my own dime. So I don't have to answer to anyone or feel guilty for not being able to achieve what I thought I could achieve or whatever it may be. So I'm really glad looking back that we didn't raise capital at the time. Um, But there's something to be said about if you can build a sustainable business, a profitable business by yourself, that is the most valuable thing to an investor ever. So it's like, you know, it's a chicken and the egg thing. It is. It's like, try not to raise capital and see how far you get, because that is a huge testament to product market fit and whether you can make it work and all of that kind of stuff or very limited cash flow. (sighs) (laughs) Take that. (laughs) Take that. I've got a lot of people to prove wrong. Can you tell? I can can hear it. it. I can hear it. I was going to say, you said that, you know, your ego took a bit of a a hit. Um, Do you feel like a bit of a fraud being in non-technical female tech founder? Not anymore. Absolutely not. I did at the beginning because I came up against so many stupid little opinions that I took on board. So I remember in one investor meeting, I had them ask, um, the first thing they asked, aside from how's your day been, is um, so when are you expecting on having children? Because with female entrepreneurs, you never know how much time you've got. And I was just like, wow, do you ask guys that question? That is so awful. That's Horrendous. Oh, and I had a, um, a really prominent person in business. <laughs> you probably would know, I won't name. But after uh, an interview with them, they turned the mics off and basically said, if you want to raise capital, Jess, you um, need to sell the fact that you're female and under 30 because that's your only selling <gasps> So it was just, it was that after that after that. And I remember taking that on board going, wow. what can I do to change the fact that I'm female? <laughs> It's just stupid things like that. So I think, um, yeah, like it, it's it's hard. It's definitely hard. It's hard to give advice, but I, I think now I've learned things I needed to learn. I know more about tech now than I ever have, and I'm really confident in many areas around tech. So I think it's just like, you know, backing yourself and not discounting that all your, you know, your failures, your failures for some reason, your failures were really important learnings that have pushed the business forward. So be proud of them rather than embarrassed of them. <laughs> I love that quote. Can we capture that end quote just there? <laughs> I came failures. up with that just then. Yeah, so I can't remember what beautiful. I said. Yeah. <laughs> go down in history. <laughs> wow. Wow. Where, Where do we go, go from, from there? <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess I've got one question. How did you end up funding the portal? You spoke about that. You came back from the US. You've obviously managed to build it. Where did that money come from when you were, you know, tight on on money? I maxed out a credit card, to be honest. I wow. had this one personal credit card left from that I had applied for well before I started a business that had um, $5,000 on it. And so I maxed that out and also built out the MVP myself to save on graphic designers and everything like that. I designed it myself. I built the MVP myself and did the initial, like the front end HTML I did myself. So all I needed was our senior developer to connect it all to the database and make it work from a basic standpoint, which allowed us to very cheaply validate that idea. And, you know, when we launched it, I was, we got a few brands um, on board to, to pilot that feature and we didn't release it to everyone to begin with. We were like, okay, let's see how this works. And ASOS signed up completely organically 
And that was surreal for me. I was like, stop it, ASOS want this. How fantastic. And so they piloted, um, they got 500 pitches in the first few weeks, which is crazy. And um, Olay piloted it, Gritty Pretty and Hey Tiger piloted it as well. And off the basis of those few brands um, getting some initial results, that kind of made me go, okay, I can invest more in this pitch portal, which now we're building out some additional features. But, you know, it's bit by bit. We launched that in May 2019 and only now do we have the funds to sort of chip away at some new um, iterations of that pitch portal. Amazing. So run us through the business model. You're a subscription service, so they pay a monthly fee. Why did you go for that model? And do you have any other kind of offers or structures that people can buy into? Yeah, this is a really good question. I get asked this a lot, particularly in investment conversations. Everyone says, well, why don't you just charge per connection? Or why don't you take a clip off the value of that collaboration? So we have tested all of those models um, and a few reasons why they didn't work is that the per connection charge doesn't work because it's not accessible for small business. You know, what do you charge for a connection with Mac Cosmetics compared to a small local business? You know, like popping a value on that and going, we're going to charge you to connect with them is really tricky. And then you'd have to reveal the brand name in order to Mm. um, showcase, you know, the value behind that, in which case then brands can just sort of, again, short circuit the site and that defeats the purpose um, of all of that. The other one is taking a clip on value, which I see, you know, lots of influencer platforms um, do. And that's because influencer collaborations are essentially a paid advertising strategy so that there is money changing hands. Whereas Collabasaurus, 90% of the collaborations that happen through the platform don't involve cash exchange. So for us to go, well, this is worth $10,000 and therefore we're going to take a clip of blah, businesses are going to go, well, stuff you. We're not actually changing anything. It's really hard to police that. You know, so subscriptions we landed on and it was absolutely the best strategy And um, because collaborations need to be an ongoing part of any business's marketing strategy, you know, American Express actually released a report in 2017 on the value of brand collaborations that um, established that on average for mid-sized companies in Australia, they result in either $319,000 in savings for businesses or over $420,000 in sort of increase in sales, which is crazy but they, you know, did a whole lot of research and statistics around it and the optimal amount of collaborations that businesses need to be doing every year to achieve, you know, results of that 25 times cheaper and, you know, amazing brand impact is five times or more. So we kind of think, you know what, if you do a collaboration every two months, that's perfect. And that is absolutely lending itself to a subscription model. Um, And it means that it's accessible still for small businesses and big businesses. Um, That's always been at the core of why we do what we do is we want to make it easy and accessible and exciting, um, but also structured as well for brands big and small to achieve partnership marketing. Makes sense. Yeah, it does. For um, business owners that are looking at kind of um, creating a subscription or a membership model, what pieces of advice would you give or what are some of the things that we need to think about when exploring that as a, as a model? Oh, so many things. I learned so many things along the way. I think um, there's actually a really great podcast I love by Chartmogul. So Chartmogul is a subscription analytics tool. So they run a podcast that interview all of these subscription business founders about, 
how they, you know, approach growth or how they tweak their metrics or whatever it may be. That's super interesting and very specifically product focused. Um, So I would definitely recommend that. The second one is understand which metrics are actually important to track. I think at the beginning, I, because I came from marketing, I was so sucked into things like Instagram follower numbers and engagement and, um, you know, like, oh, a Mm. big PR piece in, I don't know, some big magazine, for example. I think what you actually need to be focusing on as a subscription business is monthly recurring revenue or annual recurring revenue, depending on whether you charge monthly or annual contracts. Um, Lifetime value rates are really important and churn rates are incredibly Mm. important. So that's how often you lose customers. Mm. Um, And that is a really incredible, all of those three things are indicators as to how you can tweak how your platform runs to be better. So making that shift, I reckon I probably really only got my head around those key metrics as the core drivers behind our entire business. It was probably... mm, 2018, to be honest, because it was like all Mm. of those investment conversations, they kept coming up and I was like, wow, these metrics are incredibly important to everybody and not important to me. (laughs) Why is that? And I was like, why is that? And then, yeah, yeah, focusing on those and going, okay, let's increase lifetime value. How can we do that? That actually allows you to figure out how you can create more and more value for your customers and then ultimately make more money out of them. And then it's like, okay, how do you reduce your acquisition cost? Um, That's another really important metric. And then that should inform your marketing and so on and so on. So get your metrics right and definitely check out product-based experts around the subscription space. So the Chartmogul podcast is a great place to start, but Medium have a ton of articles from product designers and developers Mm. and subscription experts that talk about how you can optimise. But it is very, you know, specific to the particular company, what it is you're selling and selling subscriptions to, and just do a whole lot of testing and measuring. Yeah. Love it. Some great advice. So we have a couple of final questions for you. Yeah. Um, you have said a few times throughout this chat that there were moments where you were like, oh, fuck, like, you know, is this, is this the right thing? Do I give up? Is it going to work? We want to know what motivated you in those moments to keep going. Oh, I mean, I'm such a big believer in universe things. And I think in, you know, I've seriously thought about giving up very seriously twice, I would say over the course of five years. And the first time was, you know, it just happened to be timing wise that Apple randomly reached out to me the day I was about to close the doors. So it was like those little glimmers of validation that have kept me going because, you know, deep down, I know how powerful brand collaborations can be. You can double your reach and halve your production costs. It's crazy. I don't understand why more businesses aren't doing it regularly. And that's been such a driver for me because I've done partnerships again and again throughout my career for myself and also for clients. And I've just seen the impacts of them. So I really am so attached to the impact of brand collaborations and what they can do for a business. But I think also, you know, timing and little signs from the universe and listening to your gut are so important. You know, like even little things like that have kept me going have been, um, you know, at the end of 2018, when I really thought about giving up Calabasaurus and I had lots of chats with my boyfriend at the time being like, what am I going to do? 
if I'm not doing Calabasaurus, you know, like that kills me. I love, I love building Calabasaurus and that's awful. That's not what I want to be doing. And um, getting so much support from those relationships have been really important, but also the little universe signs being like my guts telling me that this pitch portal thing is really, really good. It's a good idea. <laughs> I want to give this a go. So um, that coupled with universe things around like winning that award, like I want to be in T30 and 30 Under 30 Award um, in... Last year, right? Yeah, it was yeah. March, I think, March or April 2019, which was right around the time I was, you know, about to close the doors. And that to me was just such, a, you know, it was industry recognition I never expected to get. And it was so exciting that I was like, wow, you know, like if these guys think I'm doing a good job, then I'll keep going. <laughs> so it was like <laughs> little, little things along the way that kind of add to it. And I think, you know, I get asked a lot, oh, how did you pull yourself out of that really dark place and, um, you know, basically start again from a business perspective. And I think it's this common misconception that you just wake up in the morning and go, yeah, like, let's keep going. And I'm motivated to go. That's absolutely not how it happened at all. It was very incremental. It was inch by inch. It was like, take each day as it comes and make small little changes and slowly, slowly, slowly um, move towards a new goal and a new goalpost. So that's how it worked for me. (laughs) And if there's one person that you can give a shout out to who's helped you on your journey, who would that be? Oh man, there's so many different people at different stages in the journey. Um, at the moment, I would give a big shout out to Jen George, who was in San Francisco with me during all of that, you know, three months of craziness. Mm-hmm. And she has just been such a support. She's one of those people that is so generous with her time and knowledge. And she's built more than one tech product in the past. So she has this leagues of experience that I don't have um, that I'm just so fascinated by. So yeah, it would be Jen George. Love it. We've met Jen. She's lovely. We have. She's amazing. (laughs) And lastly, what is one thing that you need right now? Money would be nice. (laughs) We're back back there. (laughs) We're back there, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, You know what? I think it it all comes back down to money because it's like, oh, well, you know, we'd need some more um, development talent. We need, I need uh, to tap into people who understand app builds because that's been my coronavirus project is, ooh, let's dabble in building an app for Calabasaurus, which I've always wanted to do, but always thought it's been really expensive. But the more research I do into it, the more I realise we have a lot of resources available to us to be able to pull that off. So um, I've started dabbling in that. But if anyone's an app expert out there, please reach out. An app expert or anyone that has money, money. please send it to anyone Jess or Lady Brains. <laughs> My bank we'll details are... <laughs> <laughs> Fabulous. Thank you so much, Jess, for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I love the podcast, guys. Thank you. Thanks. We hope you enjoyed this ep. We certainly did. If you want to learn more, we are over on Instagram at lady.brains and we're getting our social media stalk on. We love chatting to Jess and a couple of things that we took away. Firstly, a lot of us struggle with perfectionism. We only want to put something into the world that we've created that we're really proud of. But spending a ton of time and money making your product perfect before putting it in front of customers is a really big risk. Instead of wasting precious cash, put out an MVP, get customer feedback quickly and improve and iterate as you go. Secondly, we've heard from a lot of founders that the fundraising process can be a really hard slog. 
If you're considering raising, have a really deep think about whether it's necessary for your business right now, because going through that process will take time and energy away from building your business. So make sure to ask yourself if it's the right call. And lastly, collabs don't need to be complicated. They're pretty simple, actually. A well-considered brand collaboration only requires a little thought and effort. And there is huge upside if you get it right. And don't forget, come across and join us in our Facebook group. We are the Lady Brains Clubhouse and we are in there literally all day, every day, talking all things business. Ladyland is hosted by Anna McKenzie and Caitlin Judd. The producer is Brooke Carrigan. Audio production by Matt Nikolic.